Hi, this is Kalia Colston. And I'm Dylan Bird. And this is the podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast. And if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website. And the First People's Assembly of Victoria is the elected voice for Aboriginal people and communities in future treaty discussions with the Victorian government. The elected body has over 30 representatives of traditional owners and Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in Victoria. And co-chair of the First People's Assembly is Marcus Stewart, Nira Ilham Bullock man of the Tungurong Nation. And Marcus is our guest this morning and it's great to have you, um, Marcus. Uh, Happy Reconciliation Week. Pleasure to be here and happy Reconciliation Week. And, um, I mean, for those that haven't been tracking the First People's Assembly and all that you've been doing, how, how's it been? How's, how's the year's been? It's been pretty exciting. I mean, we're two and a half years now. Um, we've, I guess, taken uh, through extensive consultations. Um, we've been challenged with meeting the moment, meeting our community aspiration and delivering what will be this country's first treaty process and architecture. So we hope next year we'll see treaty negotiations for the first time in this country's history. And, um, it's, it's, and again, sorry, leading the way. Yeah, absolutely. And it, it's, it kind of um, feels, you know, strange in a way that this has been going for, for over two years. We've also had a pandemic over that time. How have you gone sort of managing the process with all the, the complications and challenges of, of getting together? Well, it's, it's been exactly that. It's been a challenge. And if I think back to our inaugural meeting when we were originally, uh, or our first meeting in um, the upper house of the Victorian Parliament, feels like a lifetime ago, December 2019. If we remember early the next year, we had some of the most horrific bushfires we've seen through our east coast and then followed by an international pandemic, which had us all locked in our houses. But we... We were very deliberate in our approach to how we were going to consult with our community, even though we're all in lockdowns in Victoria. We know how bad that was. But one thing Treaty gave us an opportunity to do was dream about what is life for our mob with Treaty. What does 10 years, 20 years, 15 years, even five years look like with Treaty in place? And really focus on that hope piece of how we can improve the lives of our people and and really capitalise on the opportunity we had here in Victoria and to the credit and the leadership of our elected members and an absolute testament to our community members who have driven this process as a ground up process. We um, we're on the verge of landing some of the key treaty architecture in the not too distant future. Extraordinary. And I mean, explain to us how the Uruk Justice Commission um, works as part of this sort of treaty process um, that, that you're involved in Marcus. Yeah, sure. So what we heard loud and clear in the early stages of our consultations is that there can't be treaty without truth. So we set out on a process of what could a truth-telling process be like, given there's been roughly 40 around the world internationally. One thing that we'll clear is that this was a process of justice. This wasn't a process of reconciliation. So that's where the name Yoruk, the word for truth in the Wamba Wamba language, Um, that's where the name come from of the Truth and Justice uh, Commission. But what we wanted to look at is building a role within the treaty process for a truth-telling, for our people to come forward to tell their stories and for our fellow Victorian to listen uh, and to understand of what the true history of this 
this great state is, what's happened throughout colonisation and how we create a better Victoria that our kids feel a connection to and all our kids feel a sense of belonging to, whether they're traditional owners of country or whether they live on Aboriginal land. Yeah, and there was evidence submitted to the, the Europe Justice Commission at a hearing earlier this month. Um, Uncle Jack Charles is one of those who, who shared his story. How did that process go? And, and I guess what are your reflections on, on what more might be to come as part of that? Well, what we know is um, that when we, when, when we fought for a truth-telling process in Victoria, um, we drafted the letters patent, which formed the Royal Commission, um, that it had to inform the treaty process. And uh, it's been going for roughly a little over 12 months now, and we've seen our elders come forward and start telling their stories and start you know, bringing forward some of the things that have happened uh, throughout the state of Victoria. Uh, not too long ago, I, I presented evidence as well on behalf of the First People's Assembly to really connect the dots between treaty and how this is the piece that will deliver the reform. So what truth-telling is envisaged to do um, in the shape of our community aspiration is gather the, gather the evidence and treaty to deliver the reform. But it's been nothing short of inspiring hearing our elders come forward and tell their stories and, you know, for us to build on their legacies. And, you know, there's no truer statement that, that we stand on the, the shoulders of giants and that's our, our elders, our old people and our ancestors. What was it like to give evidence? What's the, the environment like? What's the space like? Where and and who are you, who are you presenting to? So uh, very much um, like um, many royal commissions, although this had a real strong cultural element to it. With the five commissioners present, they're obviously their um, council assisting. I think that's what they call them. Yeah. Um, and we obviously prepared a body of evidence uh, of what we saw was critical uh, in piecing the dots of what treaty can deliver for our people and improving the lives of, of our mob. Um, and I think six and a half hours later on the stand, I was, um, it was pretty tiring and exhausting, but pretty significant for us to come forward and start presenting and connecting those dots. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, it, it's, it's a really, uh, I can only imagine a hard process to share these stories. And, and you know, truth telling can be painful and, and healing can sort of take a, a long, long time as well. What, what sort of, uh, I suppose, options or opportunities are there available for, for people to tell their stories as part of the commission? I mean, is getting up in front of people and presenting that evidence the, the one thing people can do? Or are, are there other avenues for being part of, um, of the, the process of, of the Europe Justice Commission and the move towards treaty? Yeah, look, um, obviously that's, uh, that's at the discretion of the commissioners um, and the commission itself of who uh, and when they come forward. But I'd be very clear that our community's aspiration is that all members of our of our community can come forward and speak their truth, tell their stories, and begin that process of healing. So that's the expectation that was placed on us by our community when we were designing the letters patent, or the mandate as we called it. Um, and that's the expectation as elected members that we have observing this process and um, we'll be expecting the commission to deliver against um, we're speaking with Marcus Stewart. He's co-chair of the First People's Assembly of Victoria. And Marcus, I mean, we've had a federal election and we also know other states are looking um, 
to instate treaty processes as well. And Victoria, you know, really is leading here. I mean, are you hopeful about what might happen in other places or even at the federal level with this kind of a treaty or, and truth-telling um, opportunities? I mean, I never thought I'd be doing a, or giving an interview in an environment where we had a federal landscape and a state and state governments that are progressing treaty, a progressing truth, a progressing voice for our people and our community. Um, it's pretty exciting to see what's happened, and we know there's the commitments from the now federal government, new federal government around the Uluru Statement from the Heart. And I mean, there's, I guess my, it's just exciting to think that that for so long our cries have been unheard and unanswered and there's been so many broken promises in this country and now we have an opportunity to um, to heal, to move forward, to strike an agreement of peace, to have a national truth-telling process that fits in with local jurisdictions and a treaty-making process that fits with local jurisdictions. I think what's important is that there'll be... Here in Victoria, we're leading the way. We're where the rubber, rubber hits the road. Um, we've just gone about getting things done and we'll see treaty making you know, for the first time in this nation's history, hopefully next year, as I said earlier. Um, but our expectation is very clear that any federal process will need to connect with what's happening down here and what has been our community's aspiration. It won't be a top-down approach. It'll be like what we've done, a bottom-up, a community-driven um, process. And we're pretty excited to see how how that starts to roll out. And um, yeah, I'm interested in in how much the the Victorian experience so far, particularly over the past sort of two and a bit years, might inform that federal process. Because there can be a lot of focus on things like you know the voice to parliament, which is a you know something that that we can achieve. But we know that the truth telling and and treaty is is a process. It's a long term process that involves a lot of consultation and a lot of proper engagement and mechanisms that can allow people to tell their stories in a sort of comfortable and safe space. So, do you imagine that some of the experience that, that you've been part of in Victoria could really feed into what happens at the national level and, and you know, connecting with communities from, from all around the nation? Uh, my short answer would be yes, um, but also noting that it's going to be done a little bit differently in each jurisdiction and each state based on their community, their traditional owners and their, and their mob's aspiration. Um, the federal process have a lot to learn. Um, we're not here talking philosophically about how this can be done we're doing it we've done it to an extent and we'll deliver it by the end of this year i mean that's pretty exciting um so we'd look forward to some some dialogue um some federal dialogue on how that can go about given there hasn't been none for a number of years now down in victoria so um i think there's a a significant expectation that um the dialogue starts down here very quickly around how and what that looks like. And uh, Linda Burney, MP, um, a member of the Wiradjuri Nation, um, is the, going to be the incoming Indigenous Affairs Minister. I mean, uh, I mean, I remember her entree to, to Parliament. It was really exciting. Um, she was cloaked and it was yeah, just, just beautiful, a real moment for our federal parliament. Um, I mean, what hopes there for for Linda Burney's um, ministry? 
Well, it's pretty um, pretty amazing, isn't it? Um, and it'd be remiss of me to acknowledge the work of, of Ken Wyatt, um, the first Indigenous uh, minister who, you know, fought pretty hard in a, in a tough environment. But also, you know, Arnie Linder's nothing short of an inspiration. You know, what a... What an amazing person to have in the in the ministry and leading leading the charge for, you know, reshaping, reimagining, and changing the nation of where you know Aboriginal history and our people are at the centerpiece. I mean, it's pretty phenomenal and pretty exciting to think about that. Yeah, and um, how does the rest of your National Reconciliation Week look, Marcus? We have sort of you know pulled you out of an event this morning. Um, is it a busy few days for you coming up? Yeah, it is. Um, it's always a significant um, part on the calendar of where we can get around, get around each other as mob and as community, and and have the yarns. But also, um, the landscape's changed, and you know we're in an environment of where, you know, we've got a government that are going to are going to uh, continue, or well, no, not continue, but start a process of national voice, treaty, and truth. Uh, what we've seen happening around. Well, what we're going to see happening around the country and, you know, something that we've done, given the First Peoples Assembly, is the voice within the treaty process where we're doing, um, we're sort of driving the treaty journey and we're delivering truth. Um, I mean, it's pretty, um, it's pretty exciting to have these yarns now with MOBA around the, around the country about what the, what the future holds. And, um, yeah, it's... Like I said earlier, I never thought I'd be in an environment where we'd have federal appetite along with state appetite. And now we've just, we're going to roll our sleeves up. We're going to, you know, park the philosophical debates and we're going to get things done. Yeah. Well, enjoy, enjoy this moment and um, let it last for a very long time. And, uh, you know, really, you know, the next three years are going to be different. Um, The idea that we have a federal government committed to holding a referendum on a voice to parliament in this term is is another thing. And no doubt we'll be coming back to that. Um, Enjoy the week, Marcus. Thanks for spending some of it with us. Thanks for your time. Cheers. Marcus Stewart there, Nira Ilam Bullock, man of the Tungarung Nation. He is the co-chair of the First Peoples Assembly of Victoria. Lots to get your head around there. Lots happening. It's an exciting space. Um, and, yeah, also you can head online and find out a lot of the activities happening as part of Rec Week too um, if you're interested in getting out and about. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. Thanks so much for being here. It means a lot. Week since the election, and uh, we're still waiting to see if Labor will be in minority or majority. Uh, the full cabinet's expected to be sworn in mid this week, and uh, there's still those three electorates to be decided. Um, two look like they're going to go to the Liberals, and one might go to Labor. It's um, hard to know if they're going to get to 76. Jeff Sparrow's watching it. Um, he's a former breakfaster on Triple R, of course, and um, been writing about the new government for Overland. And uh, Jeff, it's good to have you there. Hello. Yes. Uh, what an election, eh? Hey? Um, you guys and I spent election evening at the same place, and I was just thinking it was one of those parties where I actually found it quite difficult to talk to anyone. Yeah. <laughs> Unfolding on the screen. But not enough screens for my hand and my eyes. And <laughs> yeah, no, I'm not sure I'd talk to you after about seven o'clock, Jeff. But we're just sort of glued to the TV and glued to our phones. <laughs> yeah, the election continues to to, to to give. I mean, I'm just just after talking to Carlio off air. I was just having a look at um, the figures of McNamara, and still 
could go anyway. Um, yeah, who would have thunk? Yeah, absolutely. And, and I mean, what do you make of the past week? Because obviously we're still waiting on some results to see if Labor's in majority, but they've started governing, of course, and um, and seems to have been quite a busy one. Yeah, look, there's so much to talk about. For me, the most important single outcome from this election was the establishment of the idea that it's possible to campaign for climate change and to win seats. You know, there's lots of talk, there's been a lot of discussion about the teals and, you know, the, the breakthroughs that that they've made in, you know, relatively affluent seats campaigning over climate change. But in some respects, the, the success of the Greens is yeah. in many ways a lot more interesting. Uh, so I've been thinking a lot about um, Brisbane, where the Greens have done spectacularly well. What makes that particularly interesting is if you recall, the Greens played a really leading role in the Extinction Rebellion uh, protests that happened in Greens that were incredibly controversial. If you remember, you know, Peter Dutton, uh, uh, likely to be the new Liberal leader, was in fact calling for um, mandatory jail sentences for those protests, which were being led by Greens activists. So the Greens have been running a really radical campaign and managed to pick up uh, a considerable number of seats while doing so. And what's really interesting is in Brisbane, where they've done so well, it's not simply that they've picked up the kind of urban core, but those seats actually extend quite far out into the suburbs. So that old kind of canard that the only people who care about the environment are, you know, the urban latte-sipping elites, it's just bullshit. It's just not true that he was this, you know, party that campaigned on a really left-wing basis and actually picked up... Um, you know, a large number of votes outside that, you know, so I think that's really significant. Yeah, and three, I mean, three seats in that sort of central, yeah, Brisbane around there, and we weren't really hearing much about the Greens in New South Wales because previously they've challenged in Anthony Albanese's seat, actually, and, uh, I mean, what do you think's going to happen with regards to the Greens and the Labor government, Jeff, because that's... Often you often hear some you know quite negative things I guess about the Greens from from the Labor Party itself and people that have been around for a while and who have had their seats under challenge. Um, how do you think that might go down? So I, I think that what the election has what the election outcome has allowed us to look at the problems that we're facing from a completely new light. Right, it's opened up these new possibilities. It shows that you know that. There is clearly a constituency who cares considerably about climate change, and that constituency is now making itself felt. That being said, though, and this is a point that I made in the, the Overland piece that you, you referenced earlier, none of those issues are now have yet been resolved. They've been posed, but they haven't been answered. So we have a situation where a considerable chunk of the country has shown that they care passionately about climate change. But, of course, the ALP went to the election on climate targets that were very low and incompatible with um, the perspective being put forward by the IPCC. And since the election, they've doubled down on those targets, saying that they're not going to increase them. And, you know, that they've remained committed to essentially warming of two, of, of, of two degrees, which will be catastrophic. So I think what we're seeing now is 
that is going to confront us as, like, a major issue. So, you know, we have, on the one hand, a government that's insisting on what we might call, you know, the old perspective on climate change, which is that most voters don't care anything about And yet we've had an election where it's become clear that a lot of people care quite strongly. And how that develops, I think, is going to be absolutely fascinating. Yeah, and, uh, I mean, it's interesting as well thinking about how Labor might govern, given they went in with a a fairly small target strategy and, and, you know, weren't entirely clear on exactly what their approach would be to to particular policy areas. But over the past week, we've seen, you know, what can only be described as a feel-good story with the Murugupan family returning to to Biloela. Um, obviously, the you know the the government at the time um, apparently uh, under direction from Scott Morrison's office put out this desperate desperate tweet on election day about a boat that had been intercepted. And I mean, you know, anecdotally, a lot of people have been pretty dismayed by Labor's approach to immigration and asylum seeker policy and the like in the past. So, what do you make of of that, and and how Labor might approach this policy area, which has been you know electorally really tricky for them for some time? Yeah, but see, see, I reckon you put your finger right on the, the key source of tensions. <laughs> so, of course, they earned those, you know, they allowed those poor, those poor little kids in that family to return home, but they did so on a temporary protection visa, mm. which is the most, you know, um, fragile form of um, authorization that's possible to give them. So... Even in a case like that where there's clear majority sentiment in, in favour of this family that's been through so much, they couldn't they couldn't come actually allowing them to become citizens or giving them anything other than the most minor form of protection. And I think this is the dilemma that we're going to see all down the line. I mean, in some respects, this was not the greatest election to win. When you think about all of the crises that are amounting, you know, so we're in an increasingly inflationary economy with um, cost of pressures mounting all across the board. There's widespread expectation that there's going to be a recession internationally in the next year. There's the war still raging in Ukraine. And, of course, the, the tensions with China that we've talked about a lot on this show, well... All of those issues now confront the, the, the Labor Party. And, of course, the difficulty that they face is because they went into the election with these, with a fairly conservative um, policy framework, they confront all of these issues um, yeah, with one hand tied behind their back. So, for instance, um, you know, Jim Chalmers is talking about the economy clear that, um, that, that that there's going to be a need for budget repair and he's been sort of intimating that, that will entail something pretty close to an austerity program. But of course, the, the Labor Party committed to, um, to not repealing the income tax cuts that the old government had scheduled mm. for 2024. Now that, that creates a flat rate of 30 a flat tax rate of anyone um, between $45,000 and $200,000, which is like an extraordinarily regressive um, tax policy, but one that will massively um, punch a hole in the budget that the government is claiming that they're going to repair. And I think we can see that all along the board, that, that increasingly there will be a conflict between the problems that the Labor Party is now inheriting 
and the policy options that they have available to them. So as I said, I think it's going to be extraordinarily interesting times. Yeah, and, I, and then with all, even with all of that, it does feel like we can expect and, well, really that we can hope for uh, different kinds of political conversations in the country. And we're already seeing that happen internationally with quite a, you know, a really warm welcome for the new Prime Minister and also with Senator Penny Wong heading to the Pacific and, and essentially you know, saying... we. we we hear you, uh, particularly around climate. So these and, – and the voice to Parliament, the Uluru Statement, was speaking with a, another um, program guest earlier this morning about how how hopeful that feels with uh, Linda Burney becoming Indigenous Affairs Minister. So there is this sort of sense that we can expect different conversations from this Parliament. Well, this, I think, is the key point. I think that expectations have risen dramatically after the election, that people were feeling so beaten down by the years of this terrible Conservative government. And now that it's been thrown out of um, office, I think people really do have sort of glimmerings of hopes that things might be better. I think, though, whether that manifests is going to depend massively on the extent to which people are actually able to put pressure on this new government. Because I think the natural inclination of this government will be to the right. And I think that will be in the context in which the, um, you know, the, the conservative media w- will be going absolutely feral, that we're looking at a liberal being, you know, led by Peter Dutton and Angus Taylor, two of the worst people in Parliament, and an increasingly feral um, right-wing media that will be, you know, uh, running non-stop culture war. And then, as I say, like, you you know, you talked about Penny Wong in the Asia-Pacific, and Penny Wong is a much better politician than her Liberal parts. The substance of the policy is still um, very much along similar lines. I mean, you'll remember that the, 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 the Chinese government made some overtures to the new uh, Labor administration immediately after the election, um, basically um, asking that the, 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 the relationship be reset. And the Labor Party was very quick to rebuff that and to say that the on China. And in fact, we're now seeing a situation where the new government is pledging to send 100 troops um, into uh, to, to more than 100, 100 ADF personnel into PNG as the tensions with China continue to ratchet up. So as I say, I don't think any of the pre-existing crises have been resolved. And the question of how they're going to be resolved, I think, really depends a lot of whether we can turn this sort of you know, this unfamiliar sensation of hope that a lot of people have at the moment into something real. And I think that's going to be the key issue. Yeah, and, uh, you know, the unfamiliar sensation of hope is, is, I think, you know, right on the money of, of what people are feeling at the moment with what could possibly be achieved through this parliament. But as you mentioned, I mean, you know, Peter Dutton is set to become the, the, you know, the leader of the Liberal Party if all expectations go as, you know, as we think. Um, and the Nationals are having a leadership spill as well. Darren Chester and David Littleproud challenging for that. What do you imagine the future holds for the opposition and I suppose the the extent to which the coalition will have a unified voice uh, going forward and and whether it will be the kind of, you know, damaging opposition, frankly, that we saw um, under Tony Abbott's leadership in the past? 
I think that, that's exactly what's going to happen. I think there's a fantasy prevailing in the Liberal at the moment that somehow the election result will send, you know, the the coalition back to a sort of more moderate perspective. And I think the the the, the chances of that happening can be calculated at approximately zero. That all of the energy in the in Australian conservatism is on the populist right. That there is almost no constituency for a sort of small L um, liberal wing in of the Liberal Party. I mean, I think if you want a sense of um, what the Liberal Party under Dutton is going to look like, you only have to turn on Sky News. And, you know, the, the rhetoric there is that, you know, Australia is being um, taken over by a radical left government and, uh, you know, there's a need for a... Uh, a resistance to be formulated more or less along Trumpian kind of lies. And, you know, Trumpian kind of lies, Trumpian kind of lines. <laughs> and, you know, when you think of Peter Dutton and the kinds of issues that he's distinguished himself on, well, I think you get a fairly good what um, the party he leads is going to look like. I mean, his big issues over, you know, recent years are um, beating the war drums in terms of China, um, you know, um, beating the drums about that, um, the, the African gangs uh, beat up, you know. Uh, famously, he's someone who walked out of the apology to the stolen generation, Um you know, on, on, on almost every issue, he is a candidate of the um, hard right, and I really cannot see that there's anyone there who's got any kind of constituency to to, 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 to challenge him. And if you know, if, if you read the Australian or Sky News, you can see that that, that, that there's already this kind of um, you know. Uh, media support for that kind of vision for the Liberal Party. I'm refusing to let you um, um, ground me um, yet, uh, Jeff. We haven't got the full parliament in place yet, but I keep looking. Well, there's more women there. There's more Indigenous representation there. The, the parliament's starting to look a lot more like Australia, which is a very culturally diverse place. And I feel um, somehow um, I, I keep looking at the parliament rather than at the particular parties for what we might see change. Um, I mean, what's your thoughts around that, about the, this particular parliament? Yeah, see, I, I, I think that, um, well, for, for me anyway, the, the parliament itself matters much, much less than the sentiment that was described in, 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 in the election. And to me, that's where the hope lies. The fact that people saw for the first time that they weren't alone in wanting climate action, for instance, I think is going to be tremendously important. And I think what really matters from is to whether that sentiment can be kind of organised into sort of, you know, ongoing pressure. So, I mean, I think one of the immediate issues is going to be whether or not the Labor Party will change its climate targets or not. You know, so already, you know, we've seen Adam Bant and the Greens saying that, okay, there's a mandate for climate action. These inadequate targets have got to go. Albanese has doubled down and saying, no, we're not going to do that. You can see that that's immediately going to be a flashpoint. I think it all depends on what we do next. As I said, like, you know, the, the questions have been posed differently and perhaps posed in a much more optimistic kind of way, but they haven't yet been answered and the way answer depends a lot on what we do. So no one's going to do it for us. I wouldn't think that, you know, if left to itself, the parliament is going to resolve any of these issues. You know, the climate challenge is so immense that I'm 
very skeptical that the the the, the teals are up to anything as radical as that. And I think an awful lot depends on you know the extent to which we can continue to mobilise and continue to put. On pressure. That being said, I mean, you know, you cannot but feel happy, you know, um, logging onto a news site and seeing the footage of um, Scott Morrison back, backing up his office. <laughs> I don't know if you saw that. <laughs> carrying the box out onto the street. Uh, I, saw him, I saw him booed at the footy. I, I saw that footage, but not that one. <laughs> <laughs> always, always, great, always great to chat, Jeff. We'll, um, we'll catch you in a month or so. In the federal election campaign, one issue we didn't hear a whole lot about was arts policy, and this was despite arts and entertainment workers being some of the worst hit during the past two years of lockdowns. The ALP did announce a kind of policy to develop a policy of sorts on the eve of election day, but just what that will mean in practice remains to be seen. Jennifer Mills is an author and editor and has put a spotlight on this issue in a piece for Mianjin Online and uh, joins us now on the line to talk about it. Uh, Jennifer, thanks so much for coming on Triple R. Welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me on the show. Absolute pleasure. And, um, I mean, first up, massive congratulations on your book, The Airways, being put on the long list for the Miles Franklin Award. Thank you so much. It's really exciting. Yeah, and... um, I mean, there was a lot of focus on the George Brandis arts reforms fairly early on in the coalition government. But, but take us through, I suppose, the previous government's approach to, to arts and cultural policy. Uh, well, um, the government's sort of approach was characterised by, I think, um, rorts, corruption, theft from the sector, a destabilising effort and you know, almost a demolition effort on our public institutions. And I think that we are really underestimating the damage that that has done to working artists and writers and to our relationships with the institutions that are supposed to be protecting us and helping us survive. In what way um, might we be underestimating it, Jennifer? Well, look, the daily lives of working artists and writers are getting a lot harder. Just anecdotally, um, I've got friends going back to their day jobs. I've got um, people suffering from burnout, um, giving up their arts practice because we don't feel supported. We feel despised by our government. Um, and so I think that Labor has really underestimated the, the pain that's happening in the sector and the level of sort of um, exploitation of our labour in in what we do. You know, obviously, you don't become a writer for the money. You do it because you have something to say and because, you know, you love the work and you want to share something with the world. But it's also, you know, it is labour. And to give you an example of the, the sort of challenges that we face, so I did the maths um, yesterday and in the last financial year I've published... 26,000 words worth of fiction and non-fiction in magazines and journals and book reviews and these sorts of things. And that's my sort of freelance work, which I support my creative writing with. Now, if I'd been paid a dollar a word for that, I would have $26,000. But because I'm never being paid the ASA or the MEAA rates, 
I've actually been paid $9,000 for that much work. So what I'm getting is 30% of the income that I should be getting from the work that I do. And this sort of thing is rife in the arts, you know, across all art forms. Yeah, and I mean that that experience of freelancers having to, you know, negotiate or you know accept just whatever the the, the rate is that a particular you know, publication or organisation is willing to pay pay for their their work is something that a lot of people are very familiar with. But what kind of reforms do you think could address that particular issue of the real precarity and I suppose lack of control that so many arts workers have in terms of how much they're compensated for? their work. Yeah, thanks, Dylan. I think one of the issues, one of the major issues is that we are sole traders um, and that we have to negotiate every uh, contract individually and that there aren't standards for pay in our industries. There aren't minimum standards. We don't have a minimum wage. Um, So one of the things that I've been doing is organising with my union, the um, MEAA, and we've developed a freelance charter to try and help um, writers particularly, also journalists, uh, to develop sort of minimum wage agreements, minimum pay agreements with publications uh, where we're getting things like timely payment and superannuation and things that are not guaranteed uh, for most of us. Um, Now, I feel like this kind of organisation needs to be happening collectively across the arts and I would really encourage artists and musicians and writers to join the union to find their find their crew and organise together. But I also think that we need some really strong institutional change in this country. Um, the level of sort of structural damage that's happened in our institutions means that it's not going to be enough just to restore funding where it's been missing. I think we actually need to make sure that that funding is going to the right places uh, we need to make our, make um, places like the Australia Council resilient for artists and responsible for paying artists fairly. Um, and so one thing I think that we could do is to make public funding contingent on fair pay for the arts uh, so that all applications need to say how much they're paying their artists and writers and need to show that they're doing that fairly. Um, that the government should be leading on this. We shouldn't be going to the private sector for fair pay. Yeah, and you do write in Mianjin that artists and writers such as yourself haven't been um, sitting around waiting for funding to be restored so that you can go back to the way things were. And we do have to uh, look back, you know, over nine years now to an ALP policy on the arts at the federal level anyway. Uh, And I mean, maybe remind people what was in place then and what we're hearing from the current government, federal government, of what might come for the arts? Uh, Well, they've indicated that they're going to build on uh, the Creative Australia policy, which was developed in 2013. Um, Now, I think that there's a lot in that policy that's quite good, but it's also, um, it doesn't really recognise a lot of the the structural issues around gig work and insecure work in the arts, and so I think that we really need to improve that. Now, they have made some indications in previous policy documents that they will um, at least try to address this stuff, and actually the arts policy that Shorten took to the last election was much stronger than than this one in in that terms, Um, and they did look at, uh, at fair standards of pay in 
in arts in publicly funded organisations um, and exploring sort of ending exposure as a form of as a form of so-called payment um, and the kind of the exploitation of emerging emerging artists, which is really rife. Um, so I think that there is, you know, there is stuff to build on with Creative Australia, but I think that um, Labor's got to really listen to the sector, listen to the pain, and not just listen to sort of professional arts advocates um, who are in protected salary jobs, but to listen to artists themselves, because our sector has been really, really struggling. And, you know, we've been supporting each other We've been supporting ourselves. We've been pivoting the hell out of the COVID. <laughs> you know, we're adaptable, we're resilient, but we're also fucking exhausted, if you'll excuse my language. <laughs> of course. Speaking with author and editor Jennifer Mills, all about what might come in, in relation to arts policy from this new federal government. Jennifer's written a, a really insightful piece for the Mianjin blog, which you can check out online and I mean that there was a real focus on issues surrounding cost of living and, and housing as well in this federal election but you know that often wasn't spoken about in the context of the the, the livelihoods of arts workers who of course um, you know face all these sort of additional challenges from some of the things you've talked about from you know being freelancers and, and not knowing sort of how much and, and when they might get paid are we sort of just sort of not very good at connecting the dots here and 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 highlighting some of these structural issues in in relation to particularly um, industrial relations reform in this country which of course affects many people in the arts but but broader sectors as well I mean what's your sense of the extent to which we've sort of fully grasped these kinds of problems that that are there in the arts sector in particular yeah look uh our working lives have significantly changed even in the past decade and I think um, gig economy and casualisation is becoming the norm. I think half of the Australian workforce is in some form of contract, casual or precarious work um, and our industrial relations laws haven't caught up with that at all. So um, if I have a problem at work, I can't go to the Fair Work Commission about it. I don't have recourse to um, enterprise bargaining. I don't have you know, the power, my union can't represent me in a workplace negotiation. Um, and so all of these sort of uh, weaknesses in the system are being are being shown up. So I do think we need a really big look at um, the way that we treat work in this country. But I also think that comes down to bigger questions around value and what we value. So we've talked about people on minimum wage, people in aged care and health, um, that are being really chronically undervalued for the important work that they do. And I think that's also happening in arts and culture. You know, why do we think that culture is a is a fringe pursuit in this country? What does it say about Australia that we don't appreciate or value our artists? What does that tell you about our civilization and the choices that we're making as we face the kind of challenges ahead of us? Yeah, because it does you know, we need, come we across need that way, doesn't it? Workers. Whether it's intentional yeah. or not, um, when we don't pay a fair price for something, it, it does come across as not valuing it or even disrespecting it, depending on your point of view. I mean, that's certainly not the case that, you know, culture isn't important. It's it's important to all of our lives and particularly multicultural communities. There's a whole lot of different kinds of art forms as well. And so there's this broad spectrum of, of value that you're speaking about. And I wonder... You know, whether that can be these kinds of very practical, very real, you know, cost of living issues that, that we're talking about, 
can be dealt with at the same time as the cultural question, um, Jennifer? Yeah, absolutely. You know, and I think it does come down to sort of listening to the people that are doing the work. Um, and stuff like affordable housing would make a huge difference to me um, and a huge difference to a lot of people. Um, even an increase to income support payments would make a huge difference to emerging artists if the onerous uh, labour of mutual obligation was removed. Um, and I think that these sort of small changes can make a really big difference to people's lives and it wouldn't just help artists, it would help everybody. Um, there are, you know, specific things that we that we need. We need infrastructure and we need um, and we need change. But you know, the good news is that most of the things that will help arts and culture in this country will help everybody. Yeah. We really need to deal with the, the rising inequality. Um, and you know, I do, I do think that question of value is really important. Um, looking at the at the challenges of climate as well, like why do we have this sort of economy that's built on growth and profits for a very few? Um, why are we subsidising fossil fuel companies but not painters? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, a, it's a very good question. Uh, thank you so much for your piece. It's been um, great having you today on Triple R. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoyed the show, and if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website.